0: Ready. I was born ready.
1: Welcome to the Advisory Opinions podcast. Uh, this is David French with Sarah Isger, and I would be remiss if I did not um, recognize the the. The, hol- the national holiday today. Um, so, Sarah, happy Leroy Jenkins Day. Um, for those who are unfamiliar with this this hallowed day, May 11th, uh, 15 years ago today, on May 11th, the greatest comedy skit in the history of massively multiplayer online role-playing gaming occurred with the famous Leroy Jenkins skit. Uh, I I won't break it all down for you. If you don't know what it is, you're hopelessly uncool. But anyway, how are you marking this day, Sarah?
0: I'm more of a, all your bases are belong to us.
1: <laughs> now that is a deep pull right there. That's
0: Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, David. <laughs> I didn't even know we were doing this bit, and so I'm extra impressed with myself for being able to pull that while you were talking.
1: <laughs> you should be. You should yeah. be. Well, you know, I know it'll come as a great disappointment to listeners, but we're actually not going to focus on Leroy Jenkins today. Um uh-huh. We are we do have just too much going on in the world of law uh, to spend any time in the world of video gaming, and that's always a tragedy. Uh, but there, we're just fresh off the Our Lady of uh, Guadalupe oral arguments of the Supreme Court, which refers to a discussion slash debate that Sarah and I had in a previous podcast. We're also going to talk about Betsy DeVos's Title IX reforms. We're going to talk about new developments in the Ahmad Arbrey case and some of the really nasty, bizarre rhetoric that's uh, grown up around that, we're also going to talk about uh, Michael Flynn, and we're going to, if we have time, talk a little bit about the Bridgegate case, and we're going to wind up the whole thing with by correcting a serious omission in our comedy sitcom rankings, uh, for which we we from the bottom of our hearts apologize to our readers. So, Sarah, do you want to start us off with Guadalupe? Remind the listeners what the case is about, and what are your thoughts about the oral argument?
0: I mean, an exciting Monday in our second week of the May oral argument calendar uh, kicked off with the Oklahoma case, which is uh, lovingly referred to in conservative world as does half of Oklahoma still belong to Oklahoma? Uh, (laughs) But we'll skip right over that, And Guadalupe was the second case argued today. This is on the ministerial exception. Basically, can private religious schools fire teachers uh, but claim that that can't be reviewed under current employment law, et cetera, because they are ministers of the faith and uh, therefore sort of excluded from a bunch of these employment-related laws? Uh, Three different advocates today, one from the Beckett Fund, who argued that uh, sort of a broad ministerial exception, one from the Solicitor General's office, which uh, you know gets time in these cases from time to time, and then the attorney for the two teachers who were the plaintiffs in this case. One had argued that she was fired for her age, and the other had argued uh, she was fired for seeking uh, cancer treatment, and so it was a disability claim. Because of the posture that the case is in, we accept both of those things as true Regardless of whether in a trial it would turn out that they were fired because of age or disability, so for the sake of this argument, we assume they were fired for age and disability. Um, how did argument go? So uh, the argument itself was fairly predictable. For most of the justices, this turned on a very simple, very complicated question: <laughs> How much should courts get "quote unquote" entangled in the question? of who is a minister of a faith. And you know, one of the best moments for me was this, you know, 10 part hypothetical where Kagan just says, how about a nurse who tells a patient to look to God? How about a coach who has a prayer at the beginning of the game and just hypothetical after hypothetical. Because part of the issue here is does the ministerial exception apply to a few thousand people around the country or does it apply to the 300,000 teachers who teach at uh, private religious schools around the country? Or does it apply to far more than that if you include, for instance, nurses at private religious hospitals? Right. And how much should the court be in the business of saying, you're a religious leader in your school, you, sir, are not. That's a big problem for the court. But, okay, so that's the legal side, David. But I also want to talk about just some practical things that came out in this argument. Um, A, who argues these cases, and do oral arguments matter? Because I think today was one of the rare days when oral argument mattered. And two, the makeup of the court was more um, important (laughs) or relevant. (laughs) Uh, The Supreme Court has six Catholics and three Jews on it, well, to be clear. Justice Gorsuch has never discussed his religion publicly, but he was raised a Catholic and is a member now of an Episcopalian church. What do you think?
1: Well, so a a couple of things. One, uh, it really pointed out to me, and this is going to be a little bit counterintuitive for readers, about how robust our religious liberty protections already are,
0: and that (laughs) this is about
1: sort of pushing to the bleeding edge. Like, this is like, is this this isn't is there religious liberty or no religious liberty? Is this a more religious liberty or very slightly less religious liberty? Um, as the oral argument kind of made clear, uh, so I thought that was very interesting, and I and I can explain that later. The other thing was it really did strike me the way in which um, the fact that the justices came from two specific religious traditions, one of them the Catholic Church that is very hierarchical. Um, Shaped it. It sort of permeated the questioning, and it sort of, um, I think, uh, illustrated how little, how, how much the questioning was dominated by considerations of religions that aren't necessarily the religions that most practicing, especially like practicing Christians. In the United States, have which are much less hierarchical and take religious instruction and spread it out across the congregation, spread it out across teaching staff, spread it out across coaching staff, so much more. And a couple of the justices seem to get that more than others. Interestingly enough, you know, uh, I thought Breyer kind of got that. Um, uh, Kagan had some interesting questions along those lines. But And that actually circled back to a lot of the discussion we had previously about titles and how little titles communicate function in, uh, especially like a lot of Protestant schools, a lot of Protestant churches. If I teach Sunday school, I don't have a title. I'm just David.
0: (laughs) Well, and in fairness, you know, and you and I had this argument last week, uh, If this turns around whether we should only look at titles, I don't think there was a single vote on the court. Yeah. The question was whether you use, quote unquote, objective criteria, even though when you actually get down to it, those criteria aren't particularly objective. It's really more of like a, uh, do you use a a multi-factor test Mm -hmm. or do you let the religious schools simply decide for themselves? Do you defer to their definition? If you say it's a minister, we, the court, are not going to look past that. Uh, you know on the on the religious tradition, though, to me, it makes such a broader point. There's a debate that goes on, maybe it's not even a debate in conservative circles about whether diversity for diversity's sake matters. Right. Think about how much more interesting this argument would have been with a uh, seventh day adventist on the court. Yeah, or uh, I mean, any religious minority. <laughs>
1: Or, Or, you know, think about
0: a religious majority, like an evangelical, like a a
1: Southern Baptist, maybe
0: a Protestant of any kind,
1: or think about, you know, like a a member of the LDS church. And when you are somebody, if you're an LDS missionary and you leave and you're, you're young, you are young when you're an LDS missionary and you go and you, and when they knock on your door, the title on their little name tag is elder. You know, but the title elder, say in a Southern Baptist church, you ain't having a 20-year-old elder <laughs> in a Southern Baptist church. It's just a very and so this incredible diversity of religious belief and practice, um, it was nodded at. It was sort of it was sort of acknowledged, but it just didn't feel comprehended fully. But I, I will say that But to I me, will, this
0: is a this is a point that I will just make. Broadly, which is diversity in boardrooms, in any room, like having voices with different experiences, whether those experiences are based on gender, religion, race, uh, rural, urban, anything else, diversity is actually a good thing to have in these arguments.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I that was that's interesting you bring up that point because I kept being frustrated during the argument that I felt like rarely was the actual practice or the actual way in which Christian schools are run, actually fully comprehended in this discussion. And I say this as a former chairman of the board of a Christian school. Um, the the I thought the best and most penetrating question, and the one that came closest to sort of saying, okay, if there's a ground between whatever we say as a minister is a minister, which has a Uh, let's just say it has a weakness in that it lends itself to perhaps bad faith. Um, Mm -hmm. It lends itself to a permission structure that can be exploited for nefarious ends, um, which I think is different from the, the actual functional test that I discussed and advocated in our previous podcast. Here was a question that Justice Thomas asked that I thought was really interesting, and that was, do the are the actions in get by the the employee of the Christian school are they the kind of actions that if engaged in in a public school would violate the Establishment Clause? Yep. That, that I was, thought was fascinating. A fascinating question.
0: <laughs> it was a good moment. Uh, <laughs> now I think there was a good answer to it actually, but I do think that for anyone, you're like, oh, interesting. If I'd object to this in a public school by definition, does that make it a ministerial action? Uh, however, uh, the attorney for the two women made the point that you would still have free exercise protections, even if the ministerial exception didn't extend to every teacher. Uh, the question is whether it sort of goes into this establishment yeah. uh, realm, if you will. And, <laughs> but it, when, when Thomas asked that, and the attorney for The schools brought it up very, very briefly as well. But you do sort of like step back for a second. You're like, oh, that's a funny point. Yeah,
1: that's a that's one of those (laughs) things that sort of like cuts through a lot of the rhetoric. And, you know, because uh, Eric Rosbach was having was making this argument that if it's sort of devotional in character, he's the
0: attorney, he's the attorney. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: So he was sort of he was making an argument that, well, this is, if this is sort of devotional in character, if this is sort of if the religious conduct is devotional in character, then it's you know going to be veering much tor- more towards ministerial. And then I thought Justice Kagan did a really good job of sort of showing how, wow, that that sort of devotional devotional versus de minimis was the way sort of uh, Raspack was casting it. And I thought Kagan did a really good job by asking a series of questions. And I kept answering them differently from Eric. <laughs> like, I'm going along saying, yep, that's devotional. And or and Eric would say, well, no, I think that's de minimis. And I'm like, what? Well, no, wait. <laughs> and- well, let's
0: take that, that opportunity for a second to talk about oral arguments mattering today. Yeah. So, <laughs> it was clear to me that really all nine justices— are having a debate about uh, entanglement, like I talked about. How much should the courts get involved in making these decisions? And then, how, you know, after that question, if you decide that the court isn't going to simply defer to the schools themselves, how would they define that? However, uh, Eric Rosbach, who was the attorney for the schools, works at Beckett Fund, uh, was the first advocate up today. And uh, this was his first argument at the Supreme Court, as far as we know. Uh, his background, Harvard Law, of course, because it doesn't, there don't seem to be other law schools, I guess. I don't know. What happened <laughs> <here>. um, <laughs> uh, but did not clerk at an appeals court, and I do not think has significant appellate experience. Uh, I can't, I did not do a deep dive here, but I can't find a lot of other oral arguments. He certainly worked on appellate briefs for the Beckett Fund and has been with them for a long time. Um, I think his argument failed to read what the justices were struggling with. He skipped over the entanglement thing almost entirely, which was the main core of what they needed guidance on. His concessions were large, and now the justices who want to rule in favor of his side are going to have to grapple with the concessions he made.
1: I felt like Gorsuch in particular, essentially tried to unconcede. I I feel like Gorsuch sort of came back in and and said, and really, you know, he focused down on the entanglement point. Um, Look, I mean, the core of the issue, I feel like going back to our our previous podcast, the core of the issue was the functional test is, it's really, and, and I felt like even the, the more uh, progressive justices at the end of the day came around to this, that the functional test is really the heart of this thing. It really is the heart of this thing. And how but much.
0: That, right, go ahead.
1: And how much are they going to dive into whether or not the the court. Evaluates the functional test versus defers to the religious institution to sort of make the functional determination for the court, in much the way that th- courts defer to the uh, courts defer to the sincere expression of religious belief to the believer rather than sort and of adjudicating point, sincerity.
0: That's the key point I want to make about the oral argument. Is we've sort of <laughs> uh, let's call it like from the. Beginning of the progressive movement, maybe at the turn of the 20th century, saw the rise of expertise. Mm
1: -hmm. And then
0: in the last 20 years, 30 years, we've sort of seen the death of expertise, a populist movement that wants to reject expertise. And I know this is a very, very small niche topic on this, (laughs) but I thought... Today's oral argument was a really good example on why expertise can be a very good thing. Because you had someone without a lot of Supreme Court expertise, or or argument expertise, uh, who I think missed a lot of the point of where this opinion is going to turn on. Uh, And then you had the representative from the U.S. Solicitor General's office who came up on the same side, more or less, who made exactly the point that you're referring to and walked it through in a really logical way of, uh, you should defer to these schools, don't get the court entangled. However, you know if we're then doing the entanglement thing, here's how you do it, it should be the function test. Here's how the function test would work. And like really felt very comfortable, very prepared, very articulate on this. And this is someone who's argued you know, probably dozens of cases at the Supreme Court and understood how to read the justices, I think, with a level of expertise. So, you know, we've seen a rise of these small advocacy groups using their own counsel. And it does, it helps with their name ID and fundraising, no doubt. And oftentimes, they have figured out, oral arguments don't matter to the end result. So you might as well use your own guy and be able to say like, you know, Beckett Fund argued this case before the Supreme Court. ADF argued this case before the Supreme Court. But I think today was a good example of why having an expert come in from the outside can be a good thing.
1: So I've been involved in a lot of discussions internally with these organizations about whether or not you bring in outside counsel or whether or not you use in-house talent to argue. And my general bias has been in favor of in-house talent, but not as an absolute rule. Because I've had bad experience with outside talent um, very bad experience with outside talent and and I've seen very good things from in-house talent it's just got to be talent <laughs> like <laughs> uh, and and the other thing I would say is um you know what but I would say that there there were times when I thought very strongly that sort of outside counsel, sort of giving that, you know, how the manager in baseball gets the sign and in comes the, the scorching closer to end the game. Sometimes it's absolutely vital. And one of the areas where I argued it was vital is if we are at ADF, so this would be like back when I was at ADF, if we are, if there is an important, an issue that is very important to the first amendment, but it's not like one of the big sexy cases, like that you just sort of feel like, we could kind of like stumble over ourselves and get cert granted because it's just one of those cases. But instead, it's, a, it's, a, interesting, it's a, a very important point of law and there's nothing sexy about it at all. It doesn't have a lurid fact pattern. It doesn't have a crazy, you know, it's not a crazy media case. My argument was always, hey, you could bring in a big gun and the fact that the big gun is on the cert petition Will right. mean that the cert petition is going to be read carefully, and right. whereas if the if my name is on the cert petition, um, I, you know I'm not you know I'm not saying that they're going to go oh well look at David French has a brief, uh, <laughs> and so I think there is some value there. It's a but but I will say this I think that um, I I'll, I'll also say this everybody if you're going to be a Supreme Court advocate everybody has to have a first argument. And, and totally true. and I remember my first appellate court argument, and I will tell you this, Sarah, I am glad no tape exists of it.
0: <laughs> but uh, I guess, <laughs> well, here's the problem. You, what you're deciding between often are, is having a true believer up there who really understands why you're passionate about the case you're passionate about or someone with expertise with the justices and able to read them and what they need, where to give a little, where to take a little, when to concede, when not to concede, which is a pretty nuanced art form. And I understand uh, having groups having to weigh that of like, well, we really want someone up there who understands the importance of religious liberty and Hosanna Tabor to our clients. Um, But you do have to find that balance. And I think often the true believers have trouble understanding the other side, you know, and why it, someone might not agree with their argument, what the weaknesses in their argument are. Uh, and even if they understand them, maybe at an intellectual standpoint, they don't really understand that, that for the exact reason that they're a true believer. So anyway, I just thought today it was interesting because of that to me of especially because you had the SG. Imagine if the SG's office hadn't gotten any argument time, David.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, that's a good point, a good point. But let me let me just share a brief war story about how that has influenced my thinking, and it goes back to my first oral argument. Um, so, the previous counsel who had handled the case from, just you know, from when the client came in the door through discovery through trial, uh, left the firm, gone. So I come in. It was not a super super high stakes case great way for a young attorney to sort of cut their teeth in appellate court. And so I'm arguing, I'm paranoid, I'm nervous about it. I've, I know the record inside out. I know the law inside out. Uh, I get up there and one of the first questions, questions from the judge is related to the history of the case that is not in the record. <laughs> and I, so what I should have said, a, an experienced litigator would, would say, I'm sorry, uh, Your Honor, that case is not that that question is not answered by the record of this case. I cannot Practice. answer that question. It is not in the record. My actual answer was something along the lines of um um uh gibberish, okay <laughs> And then when I I called, you know, I was talking to the attorney that practiced the case and he said, oh, here's the answer to that and and I thought, yep. well, you know, There, there, there are some real advantages to having the person who has been with this thing from day one. Um, It's just, it's just a hard formula. There's no formula here is what I'm saying. There's just no formula. And, and that's one of the reasons why I think, you know, uh, a lot of these smarter of the sort of religious liberty firms, like a Beckett, like an ADF have, and again, full disclosure, I'm a former ADF. uh, uh, I ran their Center for Academic Freedom. What they've started to do is really pursue top-level talent, both as a lateral hire um, and, and to bring them in from the beginning in a way that where they truly try to compete with the top tier law firms.
0: And more to the point, they pitch their donors on why they need to be able to fund top-tier lawyers.
1: And the donors say yes. (laughs) Uh,
0: (laughs) Okay, David, let's put a pin on this until the argument comes out, because we've got to get to Title IX. I've got to take some beef with you here, but I want you to lay out your case.
1: Okay, so um, for those who have not followed this issue very closely, um, in 2011, the Obama administration wrote a Dear Colleague letter. It's a, a letter from the Department of Education to Title IX recipients, which is almost every university, public and private, in the United States, or uh, Title IX those institutions bound by Title IX, which are recipients of federal funding, uh, federal education funding, and they the letter essentially said, "Look, you're you're uh, to to sort of summarize a complicated uh, document, you're." you're doing poorly in prosecuting sexual misconduct on campus, which is everything from sexual harassment to sexual assault. Um, here, is, here is some guidance from us. We're going to change the definition of sexual harassment, uh, expand it, make it a little broader. We're going to mandate a particular burden of proof, which was preponderance of the evidence, because the schools were kind of all over the place. Some were preponderance of the evidence, clear. some were clear and convincing. And, We're going to give some guidance that, for example, while not prohibiting cross-examination, it didn't protect the right of cross-examination, didn't require cross-examination, while not prohibiting sharing of exculpatory uh, evidence or prohibiting sharing evidence with with, uh, accused students, didn't require it. So in essence, what they said is prosecute sexual assault, lower standard of proof, And we're not going to require a lot of the basic elements of due process. And oh, by the way, we're currently investigating a bunch of you guys for investigating sexual assault, um, being being dilatory and investigating and protecting students from sexual assault. So this sort of built a wave on campus that said, wait, whoa, we really need to hold more people responsible for sexual assault on campus. And so a lot of campuses began to put together Um, tribunals, sexual assault tribunals, that for somebody who's used to dealing with sort of a civil justice system that has, for example, the ability to know the charges against you, the ability to cross-examine an accuser, the ability to cross-examine witnesses, the ability to receive all the evidence in the case, when you're used to that, in many schools, none of that was present. In some schools, they could even find against you without ever hearing live testimony from the accused. From the accuser. And so, what then began to happen is a bunch of students who were subject to these proceedings began to file lawsuits by the hundreds from coast to coast. And judges from every kind of legal background were ruling against schools. And so, it was creating, even in California, um, California state court judges. Now, these are not the most conservative originalists in the United States, shut down all sex assault or sexual misconduct prosecutions for a period of time in the, Cal- in the University of California system to fix due process issues. So here comes Betsy DeVos. Betsy DeVos revokes the Dear Colleague letter um, and then says she's going to promulgate new regulations. And the new regulations came out last week. And they're long, they're complicated, but the the main things are they they ha- require an express presumption of innocence, live hearings with cross-examination conducted by an advisor of choice who can be an attorney, sufficient time and information, including access to evidence to prepare for interviews and a hearing, impartial investigators and decision-makers. In other words, a lot of these cases where someone was investigating and then also deciding. Um and requirement that all relevant evidence receive an objective evaluation. They also permitted schools to use a higher clear and convincing standard and required schools to use the same burden of proof on, for employees that they do for students and vice versa. And then they required um, schools to adopt the definition of sexual harassment that's outlined in a case called Davis versus Monroe County Board of Education. Um, so those are the changes. I like them. That was a long intro. Sarah.
0: I thought it was a great intro. Uh, Okay. David, you also wrote about this. Yes. uh, In an article for The Dispatch called Betsy DeVos Strikes a Blow for Due Process. Correct. Subtitle, Joe Biden Fumbles the Response. (laughs) And I want to be clear. Every time you take on a topic that I disagree with, you do such a wonderful job not coming off like a I, you know what word I want to say. <laughs> <laughs> We're trying to keep the rating of this pod nice. And you never do. You're never flippant when you discuss these things. And I, so I just want to be clear at the outset of that. Like, I do disagree with you, but you're not flippant about it. But I guess this comes the closest to David French flippancy, as I have seen. Uh-huh. Um, and and I don't even think you mean some of it. So, <laughs> So I want to co-opt you to my side a little. Okay. First of all, no question that the pendulum after the Obama guidance letter swung super far the other direction. And I think you point out some important cases that are egregious and that courts found to be egregious. For instance, where uh, you use one case in particular where the uh, decider never heard from the accuser. Right. That seems odd. <laughs> yeah, and I will acknowledge that, uh, the cross-examination, uh, even the presumption of innocence, all of those things. Um, I think that the, the pendulum swing was, was pretty far. However, what I don't think you acknowledge is what was happening beforehand and why the pendulum swung that far. This wasn't like someone woke up one day and was like, you know what would be fun to do is uh, find a lot of young adult men and kick them out of school on arbitrary uh, reasons that are meaningless out of nowhere. And two, the sexual harassment standard that now has to be uh, unwelcome conduct that a reasonable person would determine is so severe Pervasive and objectively offensive, that it denies a person access to the school's education program or activity. Do you know an employer who uses that standard for sexual harassment in the workplace? That would be crazy.
1: Yeah, this is the student on student harassment uh, standard. Correct.
0: Correct. But again, I want you to think of like you and I in a workplace. I will never have to show that your harassment of me was so pervasive that it denied me access to my workplace of course not in fact most workplaces have a zero tolerance policy if it you are found to be harassing me you're the one who gets punished i don't have to prove that it's so pervasive that it's affecting you know my ability to do my job at all and i think what you will so there's a few buckets i want to push you on here one you're pointing some, to some really egregious cases on the one side that I don't disagree with and the courts have not disagreed with. There is There are due process issues involved here, no question. However, the vast majority of these cases are going to involve, uh, on the assault cases, two drunk students. True. And those are hard cases to deal with. And they're not these simple egregious ones that you're pointing to. And so rather than swing the pendulum all the way back this other direction, I wonder whether we should try to make schools less like courtrooms and think of more creative ways to address a problem on these campuses that is huge and was very big before the Obama administration and that's why they came up with these rules in the first place. And then the next bucket is the sexual harassment bucket, which I don't think in a million years we want this to be the standard that we teach people, that basically the woman needs to prove that it is so outlandish, the harassment she is experiencing, that she is about to drop out of school. And unless she can prove that, we don't even care what he's doing. David, you have a 12-year-old daughter. I don't believe you believe that.
1: But see, here's the thing. So this is, what is the standard of sexual harassment? That's a legal, what is the, it's a legal question. This is not when you're talking about a private workplace, a lot of private workplace sexual harassment rules are prophylactic. So, Correct. so they have a standard of what, violates, of what violates their own policy versus what violates the law. Okay. So, and they, they set a policy that is short of what, that is well short of what violates the law. So the problem you have here is you have this Supreme Court case that provides a sexual harassment definition. And so what Betsy DeVos is doing is saying, here here is what the legal definition is under this Supreme Court authority. And what the Obama administration said is, uh, essentially, we believe we can define this standard differently from the Supreme Court. And that's that's very different from saying, I have a policy um, that is in a workplace that is prophylactic, uh, that is short of the actual standard of violating of the law, right? And so, I think. And you don't
0: want schools to be able to address sexual harassment that is short of this pervasive and objectively offensive standard.
1: Well, what we have here is a messed up situation because what we're if I have a sexual harassment situation. Um, title Nine. so they're filtering all of this through title nine and what title nine requires. That's your problem. <laughs> um, if you're saying that title nine is going to require, um, is going to define sexual harassment, well, then you're going to be looking to case law to define what sec- that sexual harassment is. It's almost as if, you know, in, in what you have in, um, uh, and these, most of this is, is are but these David, public universities? David, are you setting both a
0: floor, a floor and a ceiling, I guess? That's the problem here. Because it'd be one thing if you just were, you know, setting the bottom most standard, like, yes, schools, at the point that the sexual harassment has become so pervasive that she's about to drop out of school, you must take action. But that's not what I see here. I see a ceiling and a floor, which is a huge problem for me. And why we... We don't want our schools to be teaching something better than and providing an environment that is more conducive to education than I'm about to drop out because the sexual harassment I am experiencing is so pervasive that I cannot learn here.
1: But see, here's the pr- here's here it's where we're going back to what I think is the core problem here. And this is what the regulations do not fix. But here is the core problem. The core problem is that unlike in... Um, the private workplace, for example, Title VII does not require the private employer to adjudicate sexual harassment. Okay, it does hold the standards under which the private employer can be held liable for sexual harassment, and then it and then the private employer says, "Oh, if I can be held liable for sexual harassment, what I'm then going to do is." I'm going to establish a prophylactic policy that's well short of sexual harassment to protect me from uh, liability. What the the problem with Title IX is, and this is, so this Davis versus Monroe County is when uh, a, a an entity can be held liable for sexual harassment. Mm-hmm. Um, what they're then doing is saying not only are we, the mindset of Title IX is not only are we articulating when you can be held liable for sexual harassment, what we're doing is we're requiring all of these institutions, something that we don't require in the Title Seven context, is which is to adjudicate. And that is, to me, a, a very big problem. I feel like to, adjudi- to require them to adjudicate Title IX is a burden that is put on universities that is not Put on private entities on Title Seven, and that opens up Pandora's box. And then, if you're going to have the federal government saying you must adjudicate, that's the federal government using the awesome power of the government to say you must adjudicate. Well, then, you know, what is the standard? What is the standard? So, do, do you just set it up? Does whatever school want to, you know, just set it up? However, that you're going to set it up. I mean. What is the due process they're just gonna set it up I don't
0: <laughs> I don't want to put you on the spot here and we haven't talked about this off pod um, but you're involved you always have great war stories on these things and so I have to ask have you ever been involved in one of these on the side of the female complaint?
1: Oh I you mean actually involved in a sexual misconduct allegation one side or the other
0: on the yeah but on the woman's side.
1: I have not been involved in a sexual misconduct case on the plaintiff side or the defense side. Um, I so, have been I have been involved in discussing these. Uh, I've been involved in these issues from a legal standpoint for twenty years, but I have not been involved in an actual on-campus adjudication.
0: So, uh, <laughs> when I was a college student, so before the Obama guidelines, by a few years. <laughs> um, Uh, A friend of mine was attacked by her boyfriend at the time. Uh, We had pictures of the bruising. He had threatened to rape her if she tried to leave. Um, She managed to get out while he was asleep. Uh, Police did get involved. So there's also this discrepancy we've talked about between when police should be involved versus when these schools should be able to sort of cover it up on campus, if you will. Right, right. This is the egregious example on the other side, David. So she did call the police. She did everything that was asked of her. She got a temporary restraining order. <laughs> Guess who shows up at our dorm room walking through that restraining order several times. Um, and it's, you know, me, a <laughs> 120-pound college girl who has to stand at the door and say, I have 911 on the phone, you need to leave. Um. The school adjudication process, David, was egregious. He had high-priced lawyers, and the school basically decided in the end that um, he was to try to stay away from her on campus.
1: Why was he not arrested? Why was he not arrested for violating the TRO?
0: Well, David, welcome to domestic violence cases. No, I know.
1: So- so one of the problems that we have here... <laughs> because, is-
0: I mean, the answer is because he was on campus and the school, uh, you know, these schools are considered sort of separate in a lot of ways. And so if the school's not willing to say that he has to, you know, keep a certain distance from her because they found that would affect his educational experience. And I understand that these are tough because it's going to affect someone's educational experience or not. And look, he was not um she got the TRO he was not convicted in a court of law the same way a lot of these cases work they get very messy. Um, so is your main is
1: your main beef with the definition of sexual harassment? I mean what you I presume you no, support the presumption of innocence.
0: <laughs> of course. And I support cross-examination and I support trying to help these schools come up with a way to do this. But I think that it's important for people who are applauding this to recognize how bad it was before. And how lopsided it was before as well, because all I hear about is how lopsided it was after 2011, and I don't hear a lot about what was happening before 2011.
1: Right, and uh, no, I mean I think that you, I think the answer to an injustice is not another injustice, um, which is what I think the 2011 situation was, and I also think that we have a real problem, we have a conceptual problem when you're forcing. A non-judicial system to become a judicial system. So you have y- You have criminal law. You have civil law. You have criminal law conducted according to rules of criminal procedure. You have civil law conducted to rules of civil procedure. And then you're telling the dean of students and six faculty members and maybe yeah. a couple of student tribunals. By the unit,
0: way, And let me come up. Let me give you another pre-2011 example from our own Harvard Law School. Um, uh, skipping ahead basically the female student had to tell her con law teacher about her thong and her sex life and the various aspects of who all she had had sex with uh, how the night progressed what kind of sex she had with this individual to her con law teacher
1: (laughs) who was sitting on a tribunal yes that's post 2011 too (laughs)
0: <laughs> my, yeah. my point here is that uh, uh, there are <laughs> – there. I agree with you that there are big, big problems here, but you don't just swing the pendulum all the way back and say, oh, see, we're pre-2011 now. Everything's fixed.
1: No, no. But, you know, the, I just – I look at this, and I'm just kind of gobsmacked a little bit at what the federal government is telling these these public and private institutions to do that it doesn't tell other entities to do. Um, like, I've worked at law firms subject to Title VII. We have had sexual harassment policies. We even had sexual misconduct complaint policies um, and informal adjudications set up according to how the, uh, the law firm wanted to do it. What we did not have was the federal government saying, you have to adjudicate a Title VII avi- violation on site. And right. and I think that that's the root of a lot of this. And and the other thing that I would say is one of the one of the inter- one of the things that ends up happening. And this is there's so it's like peeling an onion of awful um,
0: <laughs> in so many ways. So I don't disagree with that. So you, and we're dealing with young adults on their own for the first time. Often there's a lot of things getting put into a pot of awfulness. Yeah. And we're stirring it.
1: (laughs) Yes, and one of the things that I think that's unfortunate also from a standpoint of protecting victims is you often have an intake process where someone's first resort is to, I'd say, a Title IX officer as opposed to, say, a police officer, and often what will end up happening is you'll have an actual crime, an actual crime that the victim of the crime— is channeled away from the criminal justice system. Yep. And what ends up happening is you'll have a finding of responsibility and an expulsion of a criminal, and that is the uh, end of all adjudication.
0: Oh, and I, I, I I think you and I are in such agreement here, and I think it goes to what I think the solution is, and that I even think you probably agree with, which is that the school's incentive structures have been so... Uh, wrong, like screwy on this. Yeah. <laughs> for, be, for exactly this reason, their incentive structure is to keep this out of the criminal justice yep. system. You don't want prospective students or donors looking at how many sexual assault cases were convicted of your students. <laughs> so they want to keep it in house and then they try to adjudicate it poorly because, as you said, their only option, they're. Toughest option is to expel a student who's a rapist. Let's right. say, right, <laughs> and potentially a serial rapist. Um, uh, so my my solution to this is that uh, we set a floor for schools that encourages involving the criminal justice system where it's appropriate, but that we also find a ceiling. Like help them find a creative ceiling that's something short of the criminal justice system and that actually encourages good behavior and finds new ways to deal with my, I think the, the hardest and the most common example, unfortunately, which is two drunk students. Yep. And I don't think we've solved that with these DeVos regulations. I don't think the 2011 rule solved it either by any means, but I don't think that we're just looking like, well, 2011 was bad. Let's erase that and go back to pre-2011 it fixes this.
1: Yeah, I, I think full, well, I think that there is no clear fix. Uh, <laughs> I just don't I just don't think there is a clear fix. And I think that a create a manda- a federal ma- federally mandated uh, system, judicial system that exists outside the normal just, uh, judicial system created in, that consists mainly of non-professionals, is a bad way to try to fix a bad situation.
0: Well, it didn't work.
1: Yeah. <laughs> and if, but if you are going to have a federally mandated, again, federally mandated judicial process, you're going to have to have basic due process protections. Correct. Um, and so, you know, so I, I remember, so where I have had a lot more experience um, with sexual assault issues and sexual misconduct issues is in another institution that's had a huge problem with it, the military. You cannot be a JAG officer in the military, as I was, and not wrestle with all of this stuff a ton, Uh, both in working with, uh, not students, of course, soldiers who are accusers and working with soldiers who are accused. You spend 10 years being a a JAG officer, um, you're going to work with both, and also working with teaching soldiers how to act, because you have college age. This is a college age community, and Sarah— can I tell you the single most frustrating aspect of this? The single most frustrating aspect of this was the formal briefing materials that are prepared from on high didn't deal with the real world. Yep, They didn't deal with the real world. And what was the real world? Drinking. Yep, Drinking. and
0: But this is exactly, I think this is actually a really good example because in the military, you have a criminal justice system. Yeah. And you have... Behavioral encouragements, <laughs> short of the criminal justice system, yep. uh, and I don't, I don't feel like we've found that in Title IX and the education system yet. But I'm, I'm glad we're struggling with it. I hope that we're heading towards a better place, and the pendulum uh, continues to like maybe swing towards that middle good place. Uh, but I do want to make sure we have time for the pendulum uh, having swung to a very bad place in the Ahmed Arbery uh, case since we last talked about it on Thursday.
1: Let's pause for a moment and thank our sponsor, ExpressVPN. Being stuck at home these days, you probably don't think much about the internet privacy on your own home network. Fire up incognito mode on your browser and no one can see what you're doing, right? Wrong. Even in incognito mode, your online activity can still be traced. Even if you clear your browsing history, your internet service provider can still see every single website you've ever visited. That's why if you care about your privacy, never go online without using ExpressVPN. ExpressVPN makes sure your ISP can't see what sites you visit. Instead, your internet connection is rerouted through ExpressVPN's secure servers. Each ExpressVPN server has an IP address that's shared amongst thousands of users. That means everything you do is anonymized and can't be traced back to you. ExpressVPN also encrypts 100% of your data with best-in-class encryption, so your information is always protected. Use the internet with confidence from your computer, tablet, or smartphone. ExpressVPN has you covered on every device. Simply tap one button and you're protected. ExpressVPN is the fastest and most trusted VPN on the market. It's rated number one by CNET, Wired, The Verge, and countless more. So protect your online activity today with ExpressVPN. Visit my special link at expressvpn.com slash opinions, and you can get an extra three months free on a one-year package. That's expressvpn.com slash opinions, expressvpn.com slash opinions to learn more. Can can I add real quickly one c- shout-out to Me Too? Sure. Okay, so I do think there has been a positive cultural change in the last uh three, four, five years. And that is the, the stigma of coming forward, hopefully seemingly is less than it used to be. Um, I'm not, you know, I, I think time will tell. Uh, On a
0: college campus at a big SEC school. I don't know that you're right about that, David.
1: Eh, big SEC schools are different from Ivy league schools are different from community colleges. I think. There's a lot of statements about call it, higher education that we use in generalities that are uh, inappropriate depending on the institution. But yeah, I would grant you big SEC schools. Not so sure about that. Um, many, many other kinds of schools. I feel pretty comfortable making that statement. Um, Overall,
0: but- I will agree, progress is being made. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I, I don't know. We're not there yet.
1: Yeah, no, of course not. Of course not. And uh, history. we have a long, long, long amount of history that says that we don't know that we'll ever be there yet, <laughs> sadly. Uh, okay. Speaking of never being there yet, let's—so mm-hmm. um, do you want to dive into the muck first or me?
0: Sure. So uh, a few— a few things have popped up in the Ahmed Arbery case that are worth discussing. One, we found out that it was, in fact, the friend of the two uh, people who have been arrested in this case who released that video, the mm-hmm. video that we all saw that now, started Ahmed, this. Ahmed he, Arbery case, yes. Correct. Mm-hmm. He thought that it actually was exculpatory, that it showed that if um, Arbery had simply, quote, frozen, um, that he would not have been shot. With friends like these, David. Um, I mean, thank God he released the video, and I, I do wanna get back to that, but second thing we saw was another video, and this time it's of um, Ahmed Arbery, potentially, but uh, let's assume it's him for a moment, uh, on a surveillance video inside the uh, construction, the home being constructed the construction site. Um, This is by no means a completed home. You're seeing two by fours. He's walking in. He looks around. That's the end of the video as far as I've seen it. Mm -hmm. Um, You do not see him committing any crime other than trespass, probably. Uh, A crime that I have committed many times. (laughs) Uh, Third.
1: (laughs) Me too. I'm
0: I'm now admitting to criminal activity on my own podcast. (laughs) Uh, Three... uh, The Georgia Attorney General has asked the Department of Justice to look at this case, and the Department of Justice has put out a statement saying, the Civil Rights Division of the Department of Justice, the FBI, and the U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of Georgia have been supporting and will continue fully to support and participate in the state investigation. We are assessing all of the evidence to determine whether federal hate crimes charges are appropriate. Uh, That is a new development, though not a surprising one at all. Uh, And in the Slager case, for instance, which is different in a million different ways, but worth mentioning briefly, this was the case where a police officer shot an unarmed black uh, uh, civilian in the back and then planted a taser on him to claim that it was self-defense. That was pursued both state and federally. He was acquitted at the state level in a shocking uh, acquittal. and I think it's a hung
1: jury. I think it's a hung jury. Yeah, I think you're right, actually.
0: It was a mistrial. Uh, (laughs) Sorry, it was just so stunning to me. Yeah. Uh, uh, And then the feds came in and, and, you know, took care of that. Um, And full disclosure, that was during my time at DOJ. But uh, that's all to say that this is not unusual for the feds to sort of hang back, see how the state, how that goes, and then come in later if they need to. Uh, But there's a presumption that this should get handled at the state level. So given those three updates, David, what say you?
1: Yeah, and so building on the update you gave about um, there's video of Ahmad Arbery walking around in an open, empty construction site. So let's say, let's also note it was not walking into a closed building that was still under construction. It was an open site. You have seen a number of people in sort of vile, nasty, right-wing world, which sadly also includes people with accounts millions strong, with millions of followers, um, essentially saying, trying to say, hey, look, your guy wasn't just a jogger, or, hey, look, he was not so innocent, is he? Which is really gross. (laughs) But, Sarah, I knew this would happen. But more
0: importantly... It's also irrelevant.
1: Yes, and and that was what I was just going to say. So, Sarah, I knew this would happen. I knew this was happened, which was exactly why I wrote my legal analysis, assuming that he wasn't just jogging, assuming that he was actually in the construction site, and even assuming that he might be a viable suspect in a previous burglary. Even if you assume those things are true, Georgia law does not allow you to mount up a posse chase him down on a Georgia street, try to, at gunpoint, stop him for questioning. It doesn't allow you to do any of those things, nor does any prior shoplifting conviction or any other thing that he's ever done in his life. It does not permit you to do those things. And it's almost as if there are some people on the right who will not focus on the actual injustice in front of them, unless the person who is killed is actually Jesus, and that they that they are actually just this sort of completely perfect human being. Um, now, what happened here, and that's what I explained in great detail in my piece, is absolutely impermissible under Georgia law. Um, well, and
0: can I—I I want to break down two aspects of this that I think you did well, but I want to highlight them, and, and I'm going to— um, I'm gonna set aside your somewhat biased language here, (laughs) a bias that I share, (laughs) but uh, one, a citizen's arrest in Georgia requires firsthand knowledge, so a surveillance video is irrelevant. Whether he did it is irrelevant. The only relevant factor on the citizen's arrest portion is whether uh, these two people who have been arrested were firsthand witnesses to it, and uh, by their own account, they have said that they're not, that they simply might have seen the surveillance video and maybe a different surveillance video, right. not even this one. Uh, second of all, the self-defense question is one that I keep seeing pop up quite a bit. Oh, yeah, good. The two people who have been arrested were uh, simply using self-defense. When Arbery, you know, touches their gun, then it's sort of... Uh, you know how I love hungry, hungry hippo analogies. It's sort of the hungry, hungry hippo of self-defense. Everyone defend themselves at that point. And that's not how self-defense law works. It's an affirmative defense, first of all, and one that at that point uh, belonged to Arbury.
1: Yeah, I mean, let, let's make this about as blunt as possible. If, I, if I'm jogging in Arbury circumstance and a person is unlawfully chasing me and then unlawfully points a gun at me, I would have much more than a right to attack him with my fists. If I was carrying a gun, I could immediately pull it out and shoot that person. And that would be my right of self-defense attaching to that moment. Because I I got a great email uh, since our last podcast, Sarah, from a Georgia cop. Um, And he said I was actually understating the severity of the offense that those men were committing when they pointed their weapons at – At Arbury. He said, I was right to point to the misdemeanor Georgia law that says, you know, it's a, you point a gun loaded or unloaded. You cannot point a gun at another person loaded or unloaded without legal justification. But he said they actually committed a a felony when they were doing what they were doing. And it was beyond false imprisonment. And, And so he said that, you know, their actual charge would not be false imprisonment, the Georgia misdemeanor. Um, and felony murder, their their actual charge would be the, the you know the felon the the felony of the the menacing and uh, of of and I'm gonna pull up, I might need to pull up his exact because I'm yeah I I'm, mean a
0: lot of states have felony menacing laws
1: yeah it wasn't menacing but it was essentially a, a like a felonious assault what they were doing and they would be guilty of that and felony murder so I was actually even understating the extent to which their brandishing of the weapon and pointing the weapon at him as they attempt to seize him violated Georgia law. I was actually going easy on them according to this Georgia cop. I thought that was a fan, really interesting email. And, um, and so it's, it is, uh, so again, you know, when you have that level of, of apparent criminality to then sort of spend your time talking about, well, look at this guy walking around an empty construction site. I mean, look, in the nine one one calls, the per, the first nine one one caller says, "You, he was walking or that says he was walking around an empty construction site." And the nine one one dispatcher says, "Is he doing anything wrong?"
0: <laughs> right.
1: So. Right. Yeah. Uh,
0: well, we'll continue to follow that. Should we do uh, the dropping the Flynn case briefly?
1: Yes. Um, and so I would say, oh, I found the email. I found the email. Uh, he What he says, it's aggravated assault. It's aggravated assault and felony murder. Assault in Georgia is any unlawful act that places another person in reasonable fear of harm to their person or property. Assault with an offensive weapon likely to cause death or grievously body harmed uh, when used as, a, so it it's basically, uh, it carries a 20-year jail term. <laughs> so what they were doing was not merely attempting false imprisonment, they were engaging in an aggravated assault. So, Flynn.
0: Okay, so last week we didn't get to this. Let's do it briefly. The Department of Justice dropped their case against Michael Flynn in a 20-page memo attached. And we don't need to get into all the details, and there's been a lot of ink spilled, virtual ink at least, on this. I just have two points to make. Well, yeah. Yeah. Two points. One, <laughs> uh, I don't. I, I'm not so much aggrieved by the Department of Justice dropping the case for a lot of the reasons that we talked about. There may have been some actual problems with this case. Um, what I'm unclear about is why the memo didn't say, "Upon review of the evidence, we have decided not to pursue this case further." Period. In a in a very short one page, maybe three page memo. Uh, The memo itself had two major problems to me. One, it redefined the standard that the Department of Justice uses for 1001 violations, which is lying to federal investigators. And I think it made it a a very high standard of um, materiality to the investigation that it has to be like really to the heart of what they're there asking about. Two, and this one I think is more concerning to me they rely pretty heavily on the text messages between Struck and Page to determine that uh, that they're going to drop this case. Well, what's the problem with that? No other criminal defendants, federal criminal defendants, gets to look at the text messages of FBI investigators. And if the Department of Justice just relied on text messages to drop a case. Why shouldn't future defendants, and for that matter, previous defendants or current defendants, get to say that I want to review the text messages of investigators because the department now has a policy of being able to rely on those to find exculpatory evidence and drop charges, in which case we need to review all of these text messages. That is going to be interesting.
1: <laughs> well, and the text messages weren't showing illegality. So if you or, uh, or a constitutional violation, um, which I think is a really important point here. This case was not dropped because of an illegality in the prosecution of Flynn or an un, a violation of Flynn's constitutional rights. It was it was dropped basically because of a subjective determination that the FBI was out to get him. Um, and and it, there's a lot of evidence that it was. There's a lot of evidence that it was. But uh, the FBI is— I, you know, this might come as a surprise to some people It's often out to get people. <laughs> 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 you, you were noting, I think, in the very first podcast we ever did with uh, to the extent anyone could hear me through my awful audio that day. <laughs> you, were, you were noticing that there is a there's often a bias in prosecutions and it's may be a political bias, maybe. But what's more common is the anti-suspect bias.
0: Right, it's the hammer-nail bias.
1: Yeah, exactly. The
0: FBI is a hammer, and you, sir, are a nail.
1: Exactly. (laughs) And so, look, uh, my basic view of this case has been from the beginning. If all that existed to the case against Michael Flynn was a setup, uh, a classic sort of perjury trap kind of interrogation based with a counterintelligence slash Logan Act motivation— um, when you already had the tapes of of what uh, Flynn did, so you know you could share them with the administration, um, that for counterintelligence purposes, if that's all there is, don't prosecute him in the first instance. But that my issue here is that was not all there is with Michael Flynn. He made. M- more than a half million dollars as an agent for Turkey engaged in a scheme to try to de- get a Turkish dissident deported back to Turkey. Um, didn't disclose this until after the election. Um, when he finally yeah, did disclose all it.
0: of this, all of this is true. Or not true. All, <laughs> yeah, all of these are points that have been made. But here's my other concern moving forward. What I also don't want to see is the Biden Justice Department recharge Flynn with what you're talking about in this increasingly ping-ponging justice system. We want to depoliticize, particularly federal criminal charges here. It's why um, there were a lot of calls on the right to go back and investigate some of Hillary Clinton's aides for perjury, uh, for 1001 violations also. Uh, And I thought that was really dangerous because I don't think you want to reopen cases because your political opponents are now in power. And so um, uh, there's just a lot of of issues here that, you know, they dropped the case. At this point, I hope that's it. I think it raises problems for the Department of Justice, but I don't think justice is then better served in two years or six years, whatever it may be, uh, to reopen them on those things either.
1: No, I think there's this whole separate question of whether a Biden administration, if one occurs, should use prosecutorial discretion to go ahead and prosecute him on the on the FARA elements of his case. That's I don't think they should for the very reasons you outlined, unless there's some facts we don't know. But what I think the, how justice would be best served in this case is, look, he pled guilty to one thing, When he could have been indicted for other things in exchange for cooperation. It is not doing justice to drop the one thing he pled guilty to while ignoring the other things he could have been indicted for. And then turning around, you know, in sort of the political project of what comes next, is then turning around and talking about the one thing that was dropped endlessly as if that was the entire case when it never was. And it's it's interesting to me how much it is permeating the sort of a, especially the conservative public, that the only thing Michael Flynn ever did wrong was nothing. Maybe he forgot elements of his conversation with Ambassador Kislyak. Maybe that that maybe that the only people who did anything actually wrong were the FBI here, and that's just rewriting history to a pretty. Uh, <laughs> That's rewriting history to a pretty considerable degree.
0: Though worth pointing out, since he was never charged with any of the things you're mentioning, he is not guilty of them, so we don't actually but he, have that.
1: But he did admit to one of them in his statement of offense. He he admitted to the FARA, the, he admitted in, in his statement of offense, signed confession <laughs> uh, to the <laughs> FARA, one of the f- potential FARA claims that could have been filed against him. Um, Fair. All right, so I don't think we have time for Bridgegate. It's downright boring by comparison to all of this other stuff.
0: Bridgegate, colon, not everything is a federal crime, but (laughs) we should probably figure out what to do about political corruption. The end, XOXO, Sarah.
1: (laughs) That might have been our most succinct and informative part of this podcast. (laughs) So uh, I think it's time, Sarah, that we correct an egregious pop culture mistake we made in our previous discussions of all-time great sitcoms. Um, Is it time?
0: It's time.
1: We totally neglected to mention any of the HBO great comedies, not Curb Your Enthusiasm, not Veep, not Silicon Valley. Not Barry, which is sort of lesser well known than those, and so that's a whole other area. And all four of those, in my mind, are like are all time classics. I've watched Veep all the way through three times.
0: <laughs> uh, it you know Veep struck a maybe a little too close to home for me, and I would have to stop watching it because it wasn't funny anymore. Like if you're just actually, <laughs> <laughs> if you're working on the Carly theory in a campaign. There's just moments where you're like, you know what, uh, this I'll I'll wait <laughs> to be funnier later.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness! And then Silicon Valley, I have to tell you, um, you know, in, in now I will say this for our our listeners who do not like R-rated comedies, all of these comedies are R-rated. Um, so just warning you there. But if you can tolerate R-rated comedies, there are times in Silicon Valley. I cannot remember laughing from the depths of my soul more loudly and long than watching Silicon Valley.
0: Can I tell you my favorite R-rated comedy, which is actually not an HBO one, and it's like, it's more than R-rated. Oh, no. (laughs) It's like uh, Big Mouth on Netflix.
1: Oh, I've never even heard of that.
0: Okay, Caleb is nodding.
1: Caleb is nodding.
0: I'm not sure if your college-aged children are old enough to watch this. They definitely won't want to watch it with you. But okay. <laughs> uh it is South Park-esque in the sense that um, it's about two middle school boys uh and they are going through puberty. Uh oh, no. and they have they have, there's, there's the boys themselves which are delightful characters and then there's their hormone monsters which are uh, actual physical embodiments monsters um and it's it's just, you want to talk, talk about laughing so hard. <laughs> and of oh, course,
1: then goodness. the girls
0: come in later. They have their own hormone monsters and their own problems. Uh, yeah, it's, it, again, your kids will be so uncomfortable watching it with you. But it is incredibly funny if you don't mind body humor.
1: <laughs> okay, noted, noted. I'm a little surprised to see Caleb nodding his head, so... <laughs> Caleb and I, we might need to talk about his viewing habits.
0: Um, I told, I told my college students that it was my favorite sitcom and their faces were just like, oh God, old people are allowed to watch this.
1: (laughs) But I, I, I think I'll wind, I'll wind down the sitcom discussion by the, I've got to plug Barry. It's dark humor. It's dark humor, but there's a character in there. His name is Soho Hank. Wait. Soho Hank. Yes. Soho Hank. One of the funniest people on any show of the last five to 10 years. Just absolutely a classic, classic character. So that's my endorsement of Barry. <laughs> oh, Soho. Yeah. Soho is, that's Soho Manhattan. Noho Hank, says Caleb. That's right. North Hollywood Hank. Noho Hank. Uh, That's his name. So thank you for the immediate fact check, Caleb. Deeply appreciated. Well, as always, thanks so much for listening. This is David French with Sarah Isker, and this has been the Advisory Opinions Podcast.